Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. I am on my one day home in the middle of the season. I've been on the road pretty much nonstop. And here I am in the middle of November. And I need to get some podcasting done. And I need to answer a bunch of your questions. So this podcast is going to be a little unique. It's uh, from the galactic headquarters of Randy Newberg's office here, the, the worldwide empire in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, which my wife calls the Randy Room. Uh, it's me and all my taxidermy upstairs with my computer going. And uh, what this is going to be, and, and the reason it's unique, is in a podcast we really can't have live call-ins. So I've been accumulating all of these questions from many of you since the podcast started airing in July. And uh, some of the questions are remarkably pointed, very, very good questions, uh, go exactly into some of the topics that that we talk about on our show. Uh, And a lot of these are emails, but even more of them are a thread we have out on our Hunt Talk forum. If you go to www.hunttalk.com, you'll find a a section of that forum dedicated to our podcast. And there's a request for topics and a request for guests. And so I'm just, if you hear the keyboard clicking in the background, it's me sitting here scrolling through the Hunt Talk threads, answering some of these questions. And uh, I'm, I'm also scrolling through some of my emails at the same time. But it's really cool stuff because uh, you guys and gals have really picked up the ball here. And, and I, I think you're pushing us on some topics that, that that was my hope when we brought them up, that... These topics wouldn't just get talked about, never to be heard from again. Uh, I, I think it's really good to see so many people interested in the public land issues, so many people interested in hunting and conservation. Uh, it just, I guess, when we started this podcast, the whole idea was let's generate some discussion. And from what I've seen here, that's exactly what we've done. So I'm going to start out with with a couple questions that are, I think are, are pretty easy. But because I'm on the road a lot, I get to read a lot when I'm in the tent uh, or when I'm having downtime and, and we're waiting for the big elk to come out, which for all of you who are watching t- our TV show next year, watch the Montana elk hunt. The, the old blind squirrel theory is at play here about the blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. Myself and my Tyler or my camera guy, Tyler Johnerson, we were up in uh, central Montana. I had a limited entry elk tag, and there was elk, an elk that just wanted to be a TV star. So uh, I, I feel like this has been one of those years where everything that could go wrong went wrong, but just when you're about ready to give up, all of a sudden someone hands you a gift. And that elk, what you're going to see on that hunt, that elk was absolutely the biggest gift Randy's ever got when he's been out hunting. So anyhow, enough of that. I can give you live field updates or I could give you season updates of where we've been, what we've, uh, what our hunts have been, but uh, that would bore you. So I, one of you sent me an email, and it's, uh, I think it's somebody from, let me see here. It doesn't say where you're from, but you said, Randy, I've enjoyed the podcast, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm very interested in history and conservation. I'm looking for books to read. What what have you been reading lately that is 
going to help me in my effort to learn more about conservation history. So we had Jim Posowitz on the podcast not too long ago, and we talked about his books, uh, Beyond Fair Chase, Inherit the Hunt, and Rifle in Hand. And, and those are very good books. But I've read two of them, two books here in the last, oh, I'd say, maybe three months. And they struck me as not only being very, very well written, very well researched, but extremely relevant if you're a public land hunter. And the the reason I think they're so relevant is they, they have a heavy political spin to them. They're both books that were, well, it's, a, it's about a time of more than 100 years ago. And you're going to read them and you're going to say, man, history does repeat itself. So the first book I want to talk to talk to you about, or if I'd answer your question here, would be, it's by Timothy Egan and it's called The Big Burn. Um, and the subtitle is Teddy Roosevelt and the Fire That Saved America. What it is, is it's about how Roosevelt, being president in the early 1900s, and uh, his right-hand man, the first chief of the Forest Service, Gifford Pinchot, how they came about this whole process of, of starting the Forest Service, uh, how they were worried that, that the West was just being developed, developed, gobbled up, claimed as private property, blah, blah, blah. Um, and those of you who live in Idaho, western Montana, uh, your, your state history, I'm sure, taught you about the uh, what they call the Big Burn. It was a fire in August of 2010. And it was, I mean, all the way from eastern Washington, northern Idaho, into western Montana. It was one of the biggest fire events ever in the history of our country. And it, it was at a time the Forest Service was only about two to three years old. And there were a lot of people in Congress who did not want the Forest Service to to ever come into existence, let alone to continue in existence. So it's a really good book that explains the politics behind it, why the the West has always been looked at, whether we like it or not. I mean, I live in Montana. The West has always been kind of looked at as colonial lands, almost like, all right, you guys are out there, you're resource rich, you're low population. We're going to treat you almost as if you're a colony. Um, and certainly Idaho and Montana at that time in the, in the early 1900s were, were looked at that way, even though they, they had been admitted to the Union. Uh, there was a bit of a manifest destiny that, that existed there longer than anywhere else. And if you are a, a student of history, you know that Theodore Roosevelt was president when William McKinley got shot in Buffalo, New York. He became president in September 1901, and he served out that term. He was reelected in 1904. He uh, turned out, turned down the opportunity to run again in 1908. And he, uh, he went and left the White House. He thought everything was going to be great, had his kind of hand-picked successor in President Taft, who turned out to be completely inept, um, there, there's still some discussion whether he was just that inept or he was crooked and used his ineptness as a as a disguise and a cover for it. But anyhow, if if it weren't for Roosevelt and Pinchot coming back to the the Beltway, I guess I don't know if they called it the Beltway back then, but coming back and doing something about this, uh, the Forest Service. There's a very good chance we would not have a Forest Service today, and 
you know, some people are going to criticize and complain the Forest Service doesn't do this, doesn't do that. And, you know, they, you can always do better. But let's face it, we got hundreds of millions of acres, hundred, hundreds of millions of acres of public land that we all get to hunt. And this book, The Big Burn, talks about how it came about, talks about a very critical time and the politics that tried to destroy it all tried to capitalize on a tragedy of a of a immense crazy wildfire and the fact that somehow some way the people of america saw their way through that and the the vocal fringe minority was turned back and was not able to get rid of these lands so if you get that or if you're looking for something good to read timothy egan it's called the big burn uh the one i'm just about done with right now is remarkable in the sense that I always had this vision that Theodore Roosevelt was the guy who started the whole conservation movement in the United States. And he certainly was, as a president, he was one of those guys. I mean, he had his opportunities to, as he called it, the bully pulpit. Uh, just comes with being president. But, And I've always known of George Bird Grinnell, but I had no idea that Grinnell was as influential as he was politically, behind the scenes, and the fact that he was the editor of what's called Forest and was called Forest and Stream magazine. It was the print publication of its time. <laughs> I guess Al Gore hadn't invented the internet back then, so it probably was the only print was the only publication of the time. So but uh anyhow the book is called The Last Stand. George Bird Grinnell, The Battle to Save the Buffalo and the Birth of the New West. And it is such a remarkable piece of conservation history of how the United States built this collective conservation ethic. The Who were the adversaries? How was it possible that Grinnell and his allies could do this? And it, Grinnell was a little older than Roosevelt. And Grinnell had been grinding away, grinding away. And actually, when, when Roosevelt wrote his first book about, uh, I think it was called... Uh, it was, uh, the hunting tales of a ranch hand or a ranch man you know i got the title wrong but anyhow it was roosevelt had come out west uh in his late 20s in the dakotas eastern montana and and got into the cattle business and and really took up hunting and he wrote his first book about that and he gave it to grinnell for critique and grinnell having written and and been involved in the media for a long time was quite critical of the book but Roosevelt got over that, and sooner rather than later, they became pretty good pals. And this this book takes you from the the 1870s into the 1880s, 1890s, and it talks about how Yellowstone Park was a park that was set aside because of this emerging collective conservation ethic. And it got set aside in 18... 80-something. Anyhow, I, I probably have my dates wrong, but uh, for 20 years, it had no enforcement. So it continued to have terrible poaching, all kinds of problems, huge commercialization. And in the process of trying to protect the wildlife of Yellowstone Park, uh, and George Bird Grinnell pretty much took it upon himself as that was his life's task for two decades. And in the process of doing that, he established in the American psyche this idea of we can do better for the wildlife, we can do better for the land. And Roosevelt jumped in, helped him, and then as Roosevelt became president, 
he, I mean, he had the opportunity to make huge, huge differences. So that that would be a great book for anybody wanting to understand how did we get here. I mean, those two books are are over uh, about events that were over a hundred years ago, and they're remarkably well researched. So if you if to answer your question, if you're looking for something that's really good going to give you some input about how did the the hunting hunting community of America become the leaders in conservation and wildlife and and land uh that's a great place to to start so anyhow that that's one of the questions uh then I got another question here off and this is off the hunt talk forum and I've touched on it before in some of my YouTube videos and, and just a side note on the YouTube videos we are building a uh, a YouTube channel. Uh, it's under the name of Randy Newberg Hunter. And right now, there's just a few videos out there. We've, I don't know, 20 little tips, tactics videos. But come January of 2016, we are going to have our entire library of every episode we've ever aired. Those are all going to be out there. And we're shooting, right now when we're out in the field this year, we're shooting a lot of segments that are going to go up on that YouTube channel. So if you get a chance, maybe subscribe. And when it really goes live and we start making that content public instead of private, uh, come January 1st, I, I'm thinking that uh, you'll probably be glad that you did. There's there's going to be some really good stuff there. So. Anyhow, sorry for the tangent, but uh, one of my YouTube videos talks about this issue, and here's what it is. It says, Randy, I'd love to hear conversation regarding bonus points in Western State Drawing System and where it stands for the younger generation that is just starting to accrue points. I look at states across the West, and I see as a non-resident or even a resident for that matter, I'm being stacked up against people with sometimes 15 or 25 points. When you take into consideration the units giving out two tags and you have dozens, sometimes hundreds of people with maximum points, it's overwhelming and causes someone to question if it's even worth putting in. What would your ideal drawing system be? Well, there's a lot of, lot of questions within that question, but um, the, the point is, is it... Is it discouraging people from getting into hunting by having these elaborate schemes that the Western states have drawn up when it comes to these drawing systems, for mostly for allocation of the non-resident tags? But I'm going to just give a quick overview of what they are. You either have a, a bonus point system or a preference point system. And, and what that means is if you apply, and I'm going to use an example of Colorado. In Colorado, if you apply for a tag and you do not draw, the next year you get what's called a preference point. In other words, we are going to let you accumulate these points because of how unsuccessful you've been. And he with the most accumulated points draws the tag each year for that specific unit. So if I have two points and you have 10 points, you're going to draw that tag before I do. And so you you think about that. Colorado's got some really good hunting for deer and elk and other other species. And if you're non-resident, and Colorado's very generous to non-residents more so than other states, but even at that, some of these hunts that people want to participate in take 20, 22 points. So someone's been unsuccessful for 20, 22 years, and they still haven't received their tag as a non-resident. And so if you're a non-resident who, say, you're 24 years old, you just got out of college, you're like, okay, maybe I do want to start looking at hunting elsewhere, and you're 20 points behind the curve, 
do you even want to start is, is what this question is. Um, and then the other type of system, so what I explained in Colorado is a preference point system. The other type is what's called the bonus point system. And the bonus point system is not like uh, true preference. It's almost like buying raffle tickets. You might have 10 raffle tickets. I might only have two, but I still could draw. So for every year you're unsuccessful, you get a bonus point. And let's say next year we apply for the same tag. You have 10 bonus points. I have two. You have a five-time better chance than I do, but still, statistically, there is a probability that I could draw before you do. And so <clears throat> some of these states in the West, and bonus points are used in uh, Montana, in uh, Utah, Nevada, uh, Arizona, uh Wyoming and Colorado are mostly a preference point system. Idaho, New Mexico don't have any point system. Alaska doesn't have a point system. So you, you, if you're a non-resident or even if you are a resident, you, you're looking at this, and, and to the, the point of the the question here from the person on Hunt Talk is, is it worth even starting? Uh, I guess each person is going to have to ask that question themselves, uh, you know, as far as what is it in your budget? Can you afford it? But it goes into the next question. And this is, you know, going to get into some substance here that I know some people aren't going to want the answer to. They're, they're not going to like what they hear. And once you start talking about these elaborate schemes these Western states have, it then leads to the next discussion of, well, why should you be able to discriminate at all against non-residents? And, and that's a very good question. Uh, and most of the discrimination occurs with the Western states discriminating against all other non-residents. And I live in Montana. I'm a non-resident in 49 other states. So, And I apply in all the Western states. So I, I understand the perspective that, that people have. Uh, but why can you do that? And some will even make the case that, hey, this is federal land. I should be able to hunt it as much as the other person. And if you go out to the the YouTube channel we have, um, there's a video there that goes into this in great detail. It's called The King's Deer that I did. And it explains why, how we got here in the form of law where the western states can discriminate against non-residents in terms of hunting opportunity and the the whole idea of that is that the states are the trustees in charge of the wildlife and the beneficiaries of that trust in a public trust setting is not uh, the beneficiaries are not the citizens of the united states it's the citizens of that state so you think about it, it's kind of weird that and i guess maybe not weird but under the public trust doctrine the states the u.s supreme court case after case after case has stated you as the states are the trustees of the of the wildlife within your boundaries for the benefit of your citizens so that 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 kind of makes it so that if i live in montana and i apply in wyoming wyoming doesn't really have to give me anything the the supreme court has said wyoming anything you give to non-residents you're doing so at your own discretion your own pleasure and it, it disconnects the, the Supreme Court in the case called Martin versus Waddell in 1842. 
if you go read that, what it did is it stated explicitly, and that was the precedent, and there's been many cases since then, that said there is no connection between where the land where the animal resides and the allocation of that wildlife. In other words, the fact that the, the animal lives on Forest Service or BLM or private or whatever does not give anyone a greater chance to, to hunt it just because of where it stands. What gives you a greater chance to hunt it is the mere fact that you are a beneficiary, i.e. a citizen of that state. You are a beneficiary of the public trust that holds the wildlife. And I know people living in the East or other places are like, well, that's not fair. Well, I understand that it's not fair, but go go watch that video called The King's Deer that we did, and, and it'll go into it in great, great depth. But then there's not just the percentage of tags that get allocated or not allocated to non-residents. It's the pricing. I know some of you, and myself included, I look at what some states charge non-residents relative to residents. And my state of Montana is, you know, we, we are guilty as, as charged, if, if you want to look at it that way. But it's, it's based on a Supreme Court case in 1978 called uh, Baldwin versus Commissioners of Montana. And Baldwin sued the state of Montana uh, saying that you cannot discriminate against non-residents on a price standpoint. Montana Supreme Court said, yes, you can, went all the way to U.S. Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you know what? This does not fall under any of the commerce clauses of the Constitution. It doesn't fall under the, I think, privileges and immunities clauses. I might have that wrong, but because hunting elk is not one of the rights granted to you as a citizen, and therefore all of these clauses that were argued do not apply. And from that case, the the Western states, or any state for that matter, but the Western states have been the ones who've who've really done it, is that you can charge whatever fee you want relative to non-resident versus resident. And I do think that Western states need to really start thinking this through. Uh, you know, since non-residents can't vote, Every time there's a fee increase, the majority of that lands on the on the backs of the non-residents. And I don't know if that's healthy for hunting. Excuse me, I'd take a drink there <coughs> of water. Um, uh, and I know some of my Montana friends are going to say, Newberg, you're an idiot. Who cares what those non-residents pay? You know, they're, they're coming here, they're shooting our deer, our elk, they should pay a lot. You know what? I get that, but I'm looking at the bigger picture of hunting. I wrote an article for Bugle Magazine about, I don't know, two years ago, talking about this disparity between resident and non-resident fees and what's reasonable, but also what's healthy for hunting. Is it healthy to have a disparity where it's 30 times the the resident fee if you are a non-resident? I don't think so. Um, Again, that's my opinion, and you can agree with it or disagree with it, but when you look at the bigger picture of hunting, the bigger picture of conservation, we want more people involved, not less. We want everybody to somehow, some way, have an opportunity to be in, engaged in hunting. And if you believe that hunting is conservation, like I do, allowing them to have an opportunity and not pricing them out of it is, is a way for them to be involved in more conservation than they already are. Uh, 
And some will say, well, you know, it's just if they can't afford it, well, they shouldn't be hunting out of state. They should be hunting their own state. Uh, I get that too. But this, the, uh, I got an email from a guy from Wisconsin. And he said it something about, Randy, thanks for your, your discussions about the transfer of public land and the politicians wanting to sell our public land, da-da-da. But I got to tell you, the way that the Western states have priced me out of the market, I don't really care. I, I might be busy today when you ask me to come and help and advocate for the cause of public lands where you hunt. And I've heard that before, but this person sent it in an email, and, and I think he's on to something. If we as Westerners want to protect these public lands, and we want to have them there forever for hunting, for access, for whatever it is, we can't continue to price people out today and then tomorrow ask them to come and, hey, you need to write your senator. You need to call your congressman. They're going to be busy. You know what? We've priced them out of the market. Why would they even care? So to me, that's where this whole non-resident resident thing has a bigger uh, impact than just, the allocation of should non-residents get 10% of the tags or 20 or 30%. To me, the fact that we are relying so heavily on non-residents for our funding is a big, a bigger concern for me than if it was just a, an allocation of 10% versus 30%. So some people might disagree with that. And, you know, if you do disagree with it, hey, fire up your own podcast build your own hunt talk website, start your own TV show and uh, go tell the world how you feel about it. But, uh, <laughs> so those are, those are good questions. Uh, I'm, I'm rolling through some of them here and <clears throat> here's one that comes up and I really wish I had a good answer for this. I'm, I'm not involved enough with the NRA to answer the question, but the person sent me an email and said, Randy, I'm a life member of the NRA. I volunteer a lot of my time for the NRA Foundation and Friends of the NRA. I am a public land hunter. I cannot find an NRA position on these public land issues. Can you help me? Well, like you, I'm a life member of the NRA. Uh, I love what the NRA does on our Second Amendment issues. And I, I get my American Hunter magazine. Um, and I don't see much discussion about the public land issue in the NRA messaging. And I don't know if that's by design. I don't know if it's because, hey, they're so busy with Second Amendment issues uh, that, that they don't have time for the public land stuff. But I, I think a lot of hunters, uh, like this person who emailed me, are probably saying, you know, where is the NRA on this? Um, I wish I could answer that question. I, I don't know, uh, but I'm thankful for what they do when it comes to Second Amendment issues, but I do think if there's any group that could kind of go up to the, the screwballs and wingnuts in Congress who try to mess with our public lands, if there's any group that could go up to them and slap them upside the head and say, hey guys, get your act together and quit trying to sell these public lands, start acting like a a smart person instead of an idiot, uh, the NRA would be that group. Uh, and I don't know, maybe they're doing stuff behind the scenes, but I, I, I almost wasn't going to throw the question out there because I don't have the answer. 
uh, other than I think if this person sent me an email and they had that question and, and I've kind of asked myself that a time or two also, it's, it's probably a valid question. So I, <clears throat> I'm going to take that question and jump into another point. Uh, and that point is this. If you, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the NSSF, of which I'm a member, uh, great group, one of the industry groups. They, they are the group that runs the SHOT Show. They do all kinds of great things for the shooting sports. They fund a lot of studies. And uh, the Shooting Sports Foundation funded a study, I think it was 2009 or 2010. And it was asking the question of why do you not hunt? Why did you quit hunting? And why do you, do you hunt more or less? And if less, why? And the most common response given for why people either quit hunting, they came from a hunting family, but they didn't get into hunting, or the fact that they hunt less than they did, the number one, the most common reason given was lack of access. So when you think about that, you don't have to connect a lot of dots to understand how important access is to the future of hunting. So any politician who is trying to restrict access, who's trying to sell public lands, who's trying to make less public lands or make the public lands less productive by defunding the agencies, I'm just going to call you out right now. You are an anti-hunter. Yeah, I I said it. If you are anti-public land, if you are trying to sell these public lands, you're as bad as PETA, you're as bad as all these other screwballs and wingnuts out there who don't like hunting. Because the NSSF studies make it absolutely clear that the number one reason that people are not hunting or quit hunting or hunt less is access. So I, I listened to all these politicians, and I was in D.C., oh, when was I there? April of this year, and then I was there August or July of last year. And, and you listen to these guys talk and carry on and i don't care what side of the equation you're on left right liberal conservative republican democrat it doesn't matter to me i'm an equal opportunity abuser and i'm an equal opportunity supporter i am of the party of hunting fishing gun ownership and public access that that's all i care about and i hear these people talk about well when when i ask them or their staff well you know why why are you guys so much against the, these public land initiatives or anything to help acquire in holdings or whatever. And their, their response always is, well, I'm good on guns. Well, I know it, th- this isn't an either or proposition. You can be good on guns and be good on public lands also. But for whatever reason, a lot of these politicians are using the gun issue to say, I'm good on guns, leave me alone. Bullshit. Just because you're good on guns doesn't give you a free pass to go and sell my public lands. To go sell your public lands. To go sell the kids, the next kids, the grandchildren, the children, the children. Just because you're good on guns, you don't have any right to be an asshole when it comes to public lands. It's that simple. So, And that's a little bit where it ties back to the question of the NRA. If any group is going to be able to, to straighten up some of these guys and say, look, we appreciate your support on public lands or, or on uh, Second Amendment, but 
we got another issue here, folks. Our studies show that people are getting out of hunting because of lack of access, and you people are over there trying to get rid of the public lands. You're trying to sell them. You're trying to transfer them to the state so they can sell them. I, I hope the NRA steps up and says, you know what? We love you being good on guns, but the time has come. You got to be good on public lands. You got to be good on access. You got to be good on things that are important to hunters. And uh, if that happens, I think you'd see some people uh, in D.C. starting to say, "Uh oh, you know, I better stand in line here." Because the fact being, these politicians they need the NRA more than the NRA needs some of them. Um, so anyhow, again, I I wish I had an answer to to the question of of where the nra is on it they're a great group they do a lot of good stuff on on the second amendment but i'm i'm really uh hoping they step forward on the public land stuff and and flex their muscles a little because they they certainly could get these folks uh in line all right Uh, again i'm i'm cherry picking some of these questions off off the site here and a lot of them unfortunately or or fortunately i don't know uh if it's good or bad are of a political nature um there's one and i'm going to read it uh, off the hunt talk forum and some of you who aren't from western states are going to say what's this what what does he mean what's this talking about says corner crossing in states where there is no law in the books that make it legal or illegal but the department policy statements discourage it I'd love to have people call in who have done it and how often they've been harassed or prosecuted, et cetera, for corner crossing. So corner crossing is a huge topic in the West, especially right now, because in the West, we have a trend of, I'll call them new age landowners who, uh, Montana is a good example, Wyoming, all of the Western states. We have big ranches, and a lot of those ranches are being bought out by, by people who you know they come from a different part of the country and the it's it's their land they can do with what they want uh you know i've never never faulted anyone for being successful and and buying or investing however they want but it's changing the hunting access on a lot of these properties so example would be someone comes in from out of state they buy a 20,000 acre ranch they used to allow public hunting or at least allow you across their land to get to the public land and now the new owner says you know what that's not how we do it where i come from so not letting you across here anymore i i don't care if there's public land blah 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 so that trend started 20 25 years ago in the west and it's become a pretty big trend throughout the west and i don't think there's anything we in the hunting world are going to do to change that that's just a societal trend it's a financial economic trend where the large undeveloped properties that are still intact in the west are viewed as excellent investments and you need a lot of money to buy one i mean we're you know (laughs) you need 10 20 million dollars just to get started in that game so there's probably nothing we're going to be able to do to change that but the that trend is creating this situation that that this person on Hunt Talk brought up called corner crossing. And some of you listening will say, what is corner crossing? I, I don't get it. Well, corner crossing is, and I'm going to ask you to think of a checkerboard because a lot of these properties where where it's an issue is what's called checkerboard ownership. 
And when you're playing checkers, every other section is black, red, black, red, black, red. And if you start on black, you got to stay on black. And you kind of jump diagonally to stay on, on your color. <clears throat> well, if those blocks on your checkerboard were land ownerships and the black was public and the red was private, in a lot of states, it's unclear or it's kind of been interpreted that you cannot jump from one black piece to another black piece, even though you are stepping over an infinite little corner, some microscopic intersection between two public parcels and two private parcels. So if you can think about how you have to move on a checkerboard, there there are a lot of places in the West. I'm talking millions and millions of acres where it's checkerboard. And it goes back to the railroad grants of the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. The railroads were granted, just given every other section of land along their railroads for some path of some width. I can't remember if it was for five miles or four miles on each side. Uh, And so if they would build the railroads, they would get all this land. And at the time, it really wasn't probably a big deal. You know, everyone's like, well trespassing who cares you know hunting doesn't matter well now in today's world where property rights are a little more identified where recreational and hunting access has a lot of value if you can go and buy a bunch of those private pieces and lock up access to the adjacent or 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 uh, any public land that's behind you beside you whatever in effect you're buying 2,000 acres for the price of 1,000, or you're buying 10,000 acres for the price of 500 because you control access to all this this public land. And so the whole idea of corner crossing is that, hey, where these two sections meet, I I can go and locate the corner. With today's GPS devices and the Onyx Maps chips and other stuff, you can get pretty precise. You can almost find where those corners are and a lot of times I go out there and I'll look for the corner pin because there's usually on a corner, there's a stake with a, a survey marker driven in the ground. And it's remarkable how accurate those the handheld devices are. They're not perfect, but they're very, very close where usually they can get you to find the corner. If I were to step over and have one foot on a parcel and my other foot on the other parcel, kind of like if you think on a checkerboard, would I be trespassing? And that's kind of what the person is asking in this question. And the answer is, it depends. It depends on if you're talking about civil trespass or criminal trespass. So in, in the United States, we have two types of law we worry about. We have criminal law, which usually crimes are identified by state statute. So some states have not identified whether it's a criminal trespass to step over this infinite little corner where all these parcels meet, like on a checkerboard. So if the state hasn't said it's criminal, can you do it or can you not? Well, I I live in Montana. I can't find anything on the books that says stepping over that one point is criminal trespass. I've looked in Wyoming, Colorado. I've looked in all these western states, and I... I can't find one of them that says corner crossing, as they call it, in these checkerboard areas, is it meets their definition of criminal trespass. And the, 
what in, in our courts, in our laws, a lot of times it doesn't require a statute to say it's criminal trespass. Sometimes it's a court case. So there might be a precedent out there where someone says, hey, you know, the precedent of the, the judge before me said that he thought this was trespassing and maybe it went to appeal and went up to a higher court and uh, it prevailed. So absent any statute, then you look at the, the precedent of the cases to see if there's any direction there. <clears throat> and what we have right now in the West is a whole lot of vague, uh, just <laughs> lack of clarity about is corner crossing trespassing from a criminal standpoint. In other words, if if I go down the path of looking at it from criminal statute, can I get a citation? And there's also the other path you are down that says, is it a civil violation? In other words, have I infringed on someone else's property rights? Have I committed a tort? Have I have I done something that has damaged the rights of somebody else? Because that's a civil claim. Or that, that there's civil trespass and there's criminal trespass. So I, I just want to make sure that you understand when we talk about this corner crossing stuff that what we are talking about is the criminal code. Is the state or has the state somehow through through statute or through precedent in their state courts made it illegal to corner cross? And I don't have the answer for that. It it is so vague. I know some of the counties in Wyoming it it was taken to court and was thrown out. I know in Montana, some of our counties say, you know what, I'm not going to waste my time on that. I'm, I'm too busy. It, it, to me, it's, it's not trespass. It doesn't meet the criminal statute. So the, that's one part of it is, is the criminal side. And, and I really can't answer that question because I, I don't know. I'm not an attorney, first of all, even though I'm a CPA and I do a lot of tax law and trust law. Uh, I'm not a person who's going to be able to give you an answer about the criminal code. Um, and then, assuming it, it's not illegal, in other words, it's not considered criminal trespass, and, and here's how a crime works. If you commit a crime because you violated something in the state's criminal statute, the police, the sheriff, whoever, the law enforcement agency comes and issues you a citation or takes you to jail or whatever. You are then, it's, I'll say, you against the state, you against the county, whatever. Uh, so if, if I'm the person who's been harmed under a crime or under criminal statute, the state or the county or the public agency steps in my shoes and makes the claim for me. Now, on the civil side, if someone says, Randy, you've done this, and I think that's a civil claim, that, that's a violation of my rights, uh, the, the, my property rights, then they are required to make the claim against me or me against them, however it would work out. And why is that interesting, or why, why does that come into play here? Because even if every state said, okay, we are going to make it clear that corner crossing is not a criminal trespass. In other words, it, it does not meet the definition of trespassing under our state criminal statutes. It still puts you over in the arena of, okay, the landowner can make a claim that I have uh, partaken in civil trespass. 
So what's the difference? Well, in criminal trespass, the, the warden, the sheriffs, the police officer, someone would come and issue me a ticket, and I'd have to go to court to defend, and the district attorney or the county attorney would be the person defending the other side, and I'd have to go get my own defense attorney. In a civil statute, the the landowner would have to go get his attorney, I'd have to get my attorney, and yes, we would go to court. And I say all this, I, I, before I go any further, I... Montana and a lot of Western states have a statute that says whether property is posted or not, you cannot hunt there without permission, without written permission. And I agree with that. And some of you do not agree with it. And I know I'm going to get a bunch of bad emails, but I've always been a big advocate of private property rights. Whether that person posts their property or doesn't post their property, I don't have any right to be there whether I'm hunting, mushroom picking, hiking, camping, without their permission. I wouldn't want them in my yard hanging out without my permission, and I don't feel I have the right to go and walk across their field or whatever without their permission. So I I just, this is one thing hunters can get in arguments about of should it have to be posted, should it be posted, not be posted. Randy Newberg's opinion is that whether it's posted or not, you as a hunter should not be there without permission. So, and that gets to this point of civil trespass. So the landowner, whether he posts his land or doesn't post his land, if a hunter were to cross his property, is that civil trespass? Yeah. Civil trespass happens all day, every day, billions of times a year in this country. When my neighbor, his kids play football, when they throw their football over the fence and the kid runs over into my yard to get the football without my permission, guess what? Technically, that is civil trespass. Do I care? Hell no. (laughs) You know, come and get the football all day long. Heck, if the kids want to come and build snowmen in my yard, I don't really care. You think about all the things in our daily lives where somebody commits civil trespass. I mean, it, it happens all the time. It, you know, someone's walking down the sidewalk along the boulevard and they walk over to look at your flowers. Guess what? Technically, that is civil trespass. They didn't have your permission. They're on one of your properties, some, a right you own. You, you own the rights to control access to that property. Are you going to sue them? Are you going to take them to court? No. So in civil trespass, let, let's just, I'm going to do some, assumptions here. Assume that somebody stepped from one corner to another in a a hunting situation. So on this checkerboard, you got one foot on one of the blocks of land and one foot on the other block of land, and you're straddling the corner where all four corners meet. Well, is that civil trespass? Well, uh, odds are that the claim would be made that I own the airspace above my land, and therefore you stepped over that airspace, and you've trespassed on my property. Okay. Maybe maybe that's how it would be interpreted. So the next step of a civil claim is, first is guilty or or not guilty of the the claim made. So assume that the the judge said, okay, yeah, that hunter did... commit civil trespass by stepping over that infinite little microscopic intersection point. 
what are the damages? Hmm. Did I damage, did, did the hunter damage that person's property? Nope. Hmm. Well, why are we here in court then? Nobody's, nobody's property got damaged. It's, it's that simple. So it, it, I, <laughs> I wish it was clear whether or not corner crossing was allowed. One way or the other. I, I just wish we knew because there are so many times where there's 5,000 acres of public land that if you could just cross at one corner and all you're doing is stepping over, you know, it's like the, the, the point of a needle. You're stepping over that little pinpoint and one foot is on public land and when you land your next step, that foot is on public land. To me, that would solve a lot of problems. I, I wish it was legal. I, I really do. I, I wish it was clear. Let's put it that way. Um, and this is a state-by-state decision. There's, there's no way that what happens in Montana applies to what happens in Colorado or what happens in Colorado applies to Utah. Or, this is state-by-state. State. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people will ask me, where do we go from here? You know, how do we get some clarity to this? I, I don't really know. Um, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I, I, I could, could make something up, but I, I don't have an answer to that. But I do know that as the trend of ranches being purchased and access being harder and harder, there is going to be more and more pressure to get some clarity on this corner crossing thing. Uh, and some of you living in other states in the east are probably saying, well, why is that such a big deal? Who cares? Well, in the west, it's a huge deal. Any place there was a railroad, any place there was a road put in by a, a, a timber company, you are going to find these checkerboard patterns. And it affects millions and millions and millions of acres of prime hunting ground in the west. And that's Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, uh, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, probably some in Washington and Idaho. I, I, I'm not that familiar with there, but the places I hunt in the Rockies, it's a huge deal. And, and it just, you know, if, if it goes, if we keep going back to the, the idea that access is one of the critical pieces to hunting, if that's what's going to keep people involved in hunting so they don't quit, if that's what's going to get people to hunt more, not hunt less, to me, these access issues need to be sorted out. We need some answers to them. So that's Randy Newberg's opinion on uh, corner crossing. I, it's probably not the right opinion, but it's my opinion. So <laughs> I, I hope that uh, my emails don't, don't light up too much when all of you read this or, or hear this, but uh, it's 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 not easy. You know, if if any of these answers were easy, they'd already we'd already have answers to them. But so <clears throat> again, I, so many good questions. I wish I could get through them all, um, but I'm not going to be able to do that in the time of this podcast. Uh, someone else sent me a question, and I, I don't even know if. If I can answer it correctly, uh, I don't know if I can give it the depth that it needs in the time that that we have for this podcast here, but I think I'm going to take a swallow of water here, and I'm going to give it a shot. So 
All right. So here's the question. Randy, I'm often asked, why do I hunt? I know why I hunt, but I struggle to explain it. Got any ideas or tips? Well, I think everybody listening to this podcast has somehow, some way, somewhere been asked, why do you hunt? And usually it's, if it's not one of your hunting buddies, it's probably somebody asking it because they're questioning your motives. Why do you hunt? Almost like, you know, it, it starts out with this negative context that somehow because you hunt, you have to defend it. <clears throat> Society being what it is, I don't see that changing. We as hunters are just going to have to be comfortable explaining why we hunt. And one thing that is often disturbing to me is when I'll I'll hear that question get asked and someone will say, oh, well, I hunt because if I didn't hunt, those animals would, would all die of disease. I just cringe when I hear that. It's, it's a reality that disease and starvation and other stuff could be part of the equation. But if that's all the deeper we can, can answer that question, boy, I, I don't know how long society is going to tolerate hunting if, if it's all about, well, we're here to keep them from dying of disease. That, that's not the reason we hunt, or that's not the reason I hunt. Animals were dying of disease for thousands and thousands of years before I started hunting. So I'm, <laughs> you know, for me to say that I'm now some noble guy out there keeping animals from dying of disease just doesn't doesn't seem like the answer that is satisfactory to the question of why do I hunt. And I've I've been through down all these avenues like many of you have seeing where this trail leads and that trail leads, trying to examine my own motivations for hunting. And for me, I've really come down to having to put it into the context of, you know what? I know that you probably don't understand this because you don't hunt and that's fine. You you don't have to become a hunter. I, I, I'm fine. If you, if, if this person who asked me the question, if, if you don't want to be a hunter, that's fine. But I, I often, I, and I tell them, you know, there's really two ways that you look at every activity. I don't care if it's hunting, golf, skiing, tennis, mowing your lawn, gardening, whatever, football. There are really two ways that you can see that activity, either as a spectator or as a participant. And when we talk about the natural world, you are either a spectator of that world or you are a participant like we as hunters are. And for for me to think I understand what it takes to be, let's say, a, a professional baseball player. I I played baseball a little bit when I was a kid, but I'm a spectator of baseball. I'm a spectator of football. I'm a spectator of hockey. I'm not a participant. I cannot, there's no way, shape, or form of being that I'm going to be able to put myself in the shoes and understand what that hockey player, baseball player, football player experiences as part of what they are doing. It's great to watch. It's fun. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But because I'm a spectator, I will never see it at the depth 
and understanding of the participant. And I don't care what activity it is. We happen to be talking about hunting here. So, uh, and, and you very seldom get this much time to explain to anybody, you know, they want the 20-second elevator speech about why you hunt. The reason I'm giving you this long answer is because I don't want people to be apologetic about why they hunt. No one should apologize for hunting. If if you are merely somebody who lives in urban America, you drive out to where I live here, Yellowstone Park, and you take a picture of a, of an elk, and you go home and say, "Oh man, you know life's great. There are, there are elk in the woods. I, I saw an elk." You are a spectator. You 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 are not keenly aware of everything that goes on, the entire cycle of the natural world as it relates to that elk being chased by that grizzly bear whose calf got eaten by a black bear, who had to migrate in the winter, who had to migrate back in the summer, blah, 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 blah. The odds are the person who is the spectator probably does not understand all of the intricacies, all the elements that go into the natural world like you who is a participant. Is that right or wrong? No, it's not right or wrong. It's a natural outcome. You as a participant are going to have a deeper understanding of that relationship and that interaction than anybody who's a spectator. It's it's just the way it is. So when I take it to the next step and I talk to people and say, all right, I am a hunter. That's who I am. Randy Newberg is a hunter. And I'm not here to convince you to be a hunter, but I want you to think about this in a different way. I want you, I I would ask that you think about it from the standpoint that you are merely a spectator of the natural world. I, as a hunter, am a participant in the natural world. I go there to get my food. I go there to participate in a natural cycle that has been going on since humans have been on this planet. The oldest pursuit in the world, as Shane Mahoney said in podcast six or seven, the oldest pursuit in the world is the pursuit of a meal. So somehow in the last 40 years in this country, we've come up with what I call almost a new age religion that is of the belief that we as humans can live on this planet and pretend that we don't have an impact on the natural world. Well, (laughs) that's fine. If you want to subscribe to that religion, knock yourself out. And, And if you've ever had a discussion with some people who are very adamant about it, it is borderline a belief system, which some would say is a religion. It is so much a belief system that no, no amount of logic, no amount of fact, no amount of information is going to change their mind. So I, I don't even go there with people who, if I instantly get the impression that for this person it's a belief system, I'm not wasting my time. I, I have no better chance of changing their mind about this as I do changing the rotation of the earth. But for the other people in the middle, and, and I'm gonna, if you use the, the normal paradigm that says 10% are anti-hunter, 10% are hunters, and the 80% in the middle are who get who will decide the future of hunting. It's that 80% that I want to appeal to. I want them to understand that 
Randy or any hunter takes this seriously. That because of his hunting and the food it provides, it connects him in a way to that landscape that is obviously a passion, obviously something he's deeply rooted in. And hopefully when they see that and they understand that, they don't question it. They, and I think as long as we stay as hunters, when, when we're asked why, uh, if, if we stay grounded in the idea that we do it for food, and as part of that, the food leads us to conservation because in order to continue to acquire that food, we have to have productive lands, clean waters, clean air. And that's why hunters have become so engaged in conservation because without conservation, without habitat, without all the other things, there's no way that we are going to have the productive landscapes that provide us this food. When we, I think when we start getting further and further away from that, um, that's when it, it, it gets a little harder to, to explain to people. And I do think that a lot of these people who are asking us, why do you hunt? probably didn't come from a hunting background, probably don't know about hunting uh, to the depth that we do. And so as a spectator of of what we do, as a spectator of the natural world, a lot of times I think they are sincerely asking the question for more information, and and then they'll gather information to make their decision. And the, the more personal we can give as an answer, the more thoughtful as to why it's important to us. And I don't think anyone should make apologies for wanting to go and acquire their own food. You know, think about it today. All you read about is the origin of my food, the quality of my food. And for those of us who hunt, we're like, where the hell's this question coming from? We've been concerned about the origin of our food and the quality of our food since grandpa first shot a buck and I got to eat venison for the first time. You know, to us, there is no stranger question in the world about why do you hunt? Well, <laughs> you're the same person. You're asking me that question, and you're the person who was just going on a big rant about the quality and origin of your food. I've known the origin and the quality of my food since I was old enough to ask my dad what was in that venison burger. So it's <laughs> it's that kind of discussion that I I don't know that I'm... I'm answering the question the person had here if I'm giving them any helpful bits or any information about why I hunt. Um, But for me, when someone asks that, I hunt because I'm a hunter. That's my first answer is I hunt because I am a hunter. That's what I am. That's my identity. I come from a long line of hunters. Is there anything wrong with coming from a long line of hunters? If you went back through my family tree, we've been hunters since as far back as you could trace that. That's part of my culture. That's part of who I am. That's why I'm so engaged in conservation. And some people will say, well, yeah, but you've got these big animals mounted on your wall. You know what? I do. They're memories. They're, they're, they're part of, of me. And you go back to, look how far back antlers and horns and stuff have adorned the walls of caves and of, of castles and of whatever. It is part of the hunt. 
And I don't make any apologies. If there's two bulls standing on the mountain, I'm going to shoot the biggest bull. If I shoot a smaller one, it's not like I'm going to be disappointed because I'm going to get to eat them. But it, it, these questions, you, you can easily walk into a trap, I guess is what I'm saying. Don't walk into the trap. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with anyone who asks about, this is why I hunt. You know, this is why. What's wrong with that? Because you choose to have someone else put meat on your table? I mean, anyone who wants a discussion about the, the, this, you know, there, there's this implied idea that somehow hunting is more damaging to the world than other ways of acquiring food. Ted Carasotti wrote a book called Blood Ties. Everybody should read Blood Ties, both for the first chapters that are a a pretty tough reflection on some hunting activities, and I think it gives everyone cause to think about it. But towards the end, Ted does an analysis about the carbon footprint and what is the the fossil fuel requirements to gain, I mean, I'll just use a number, eight ounces of lean organic wild game protein in your backyard by going and shooting a whitetail or an elk or whatever versus acquiring that same eight ounces of protein through industrial agriculture. And Ted is an extremely detailed guy, very smart guy, went through and did the entire analysis and by some factor of, I, I, it's been a long time since I read the book, but some crazy factor of 4X or 5X is how much more your carbon footprint is, if you're worried about that, how much more fossil fuel it takes to go and get uh, eight ounces of soy versus eight ounces of white-tailed dough. And for people, uh, this new age belief system who somehow thinks that they're on the moral high ground because they're a vegan which if they want to be that for their own belief of what's best for their body, I'm fine with that. But if they think they're doing it because they're less impactful to the environment, to the natural world, well, there's an education to be had. There's going to be a big surprise to them someday. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the theory that, that somehow – you're on the moral high ground because you have someone else damage the landscape or kill an animal for you. If there is a meal of food on your plate at dinner, there is blood on somebody's hands. I, I, there's no other way around it. Whether you as a hunter or an angler went out, shot that deer, caught that fish, processed it, cooked it, start to finish... We all know we're hunters, we, we're anglers. We look at it. We're like, you know what? I'm taking on. I'm taking ownership of that. I, I am responsible for the death of that animal, and the death of that animal and the food it provides me is my connection to these landscapes. And just yesterday, two days ago, I shot a whitetail buck here in Montana, and I, I don't know how many uh, animals I've I've taken while hunting, but I'm 51 now, and I probably well a lot, and I I eat them all. And even today, I, this is probably whitetail buck number 30, I walked up to that buck, and as I watched his eyes change color, and it happens, uh, those of you who don't know how it happens, if, you know, 
15 minutes or so, 10 minutes after they, they expire. It just struck me. It's like, God damn, Randy, this is serious stuff. That animal is dead. And I had, I had to pause and think about that. And you'd think that you could get over that, that, that somehow it wouldn't affect you after a certain period of time. It did. It still does. And why does it affect me that way? It affects me that way because that animal represents everything that is important to hunting from at least how Randy Newberg looks at it. The food that it's going to provide. The fact that it's a product of an abundant, robust, healthy landscape. And that deer is the bridge that connects me to the land through its food, through the chase, the pursuit, through its offspring that I know now I'm responsible for making the landscape better for the offspring of that deer because I want to continue to have these natural, wonderful, wild places that we have, quote-unquote, wild life. And so you, you go through this whole discussion with people who really don't get it to that depth because they are spectators. I'm participating. You're participating. So anyhow, that was that was a long answer. I'm sorry that, that took so long. <laughs> uh but uh that's that's how I go about it. And if ever you see me get asked that question, I don't care if it's publicly or privately, Randy Newberg is never gonna back down about why I hunt. Hunting contributes so much to the world of conservation. It contributes so much to our lives that I'm excited to see this, if you want to call them the foodies, if you want to call them locavores, whatever. I love the fact that there is a movement afoot of people wanting to know more about their food and know more about the origin of their food, not just the quality of the food, but the origin of their food. Because the path that it is going to take them down is going to be the path we as hunters have been walking for years and years and years and years. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us when we encounter those new people in it, a lot of these people aren't teenagers getting into it. We're talking people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 60s who are getting into hunting because of their concern about food. And I think it's very important for us to embrace those people, to mentor them, to teach them, to maybe not always agree with them, and they aren't going to always agree with us. And maybe they come from a completely different background, a completely different political mindset. I don't care. The fact that they're interested in the food, in the landscape, in habitat, in conservation, that's all I need. That, that To me, that is is going to be interesting to see how it plays out because – when those new people come to hunting, they're definitely going to have a different value system. They're going to have a different perspective about why they want to hunt that might be different than how some of the rest of us want to hunt. But the bigger point is we have a society that is growing more concerned about how their natural world is being used to put food on their table. And in the long run, that just that in itself is is very helpful so 
All right. I'm, man, I'm rambling on here. So I, I apologize to all of you who are falling asleep, driven in the ditch, and uh, kind of like the old direct TV commercials that said, don't buy cable. You know, don't listen to Randy. You'll fall asleep, drive in the ditch, run through the fence. The cows will get out of the fence. They'll go out on the interstate and cause an accident, and you'll get sued or some connection and dots like that. But uh, yeah. Um, Someone else has wrote in, Randy, what is your bucket list of hunts you've not been able to pull off? Well, you know, I I don't really know that I have a bucket list of hunts. If people ask me, have you been to Africa? Nope. Have you been to Canada? Not hunting. Fishing a lot, but not hunting. Have you been to Mexico? No, I'll never go to Mexico because I'm a fugitive from justice down there. When I was in college, me and six other guys got thrown in jail in Puerto Penasco. And the way that we got out was we left the sheriff our slightly dented brand new Toyota 4x4 as ransom and we flew to the border in our remaining vehicle. So if you offered me a desert sheep tag in in old Mexico, I would decline it. That's just the way it is. So, um, But when we want to talk about bucket lists, the, the reason I talk about Mexico, Canada, Africa, elsewhere is there's so much about North America, just even in the West, in my backyard that intrigues me that my mind doesn't have to go very far geographically to fill a list of things I want to do so far beyond what my remaining days is probably going to allow me to do that I I really don't have a bucket list. Uh, you know, if, if you told me, well, Randy, the only thing that you get to hunt for the rest of your life is blank, blank, blank. What would it be? Mm, that that'd be putting me in a in a hard spot. It would be a toss up between. Well, if it was with a a bow, it would be elk, absolute slam dunk. There's nothing more fun, more exhilarating than chasing elk with a bow. But if it was okay, you have to use a rifle. It would probably be antelope. And I know some of you are probably saying, "What antelope?" Uh, if if you've not hunted antelope, if you've not eaten antelope, oh my goodness, you need to go and do it. By far, the the, the thing that gets cleaned out of my freezer before anything else, way before anything else, is uh, antelope. No. No absolute way change form. It's <laughs> I'll share just about anything out of my freezer, but you're not getting any of my antelope. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do two more questions here before I leave. Um, and uh, I I I've got my truck packed. I leave for Wyoming tomorrow morning. Uh, I hunted two days here in Montana. Before that, I was in Colorado for a week. Uh, some of you are probably saying, Randy, how do you find a woman that puts up with you? Uh, that's a good question. We've been married 26 years and I think the more that I'm gone, the greater the likelihood of me getting to the 27th or the 28th year. So, uh, and and if you email, uh, some of you guys send me emails that if you knew my wife answers all my emails when I'm on the road and organizes my schedule, you probably would change the way you worded that email so just a note of caution if you send corny jokes or other stuff on email they're going to get read by my wife first the woman who is what's the old saying behind every successful operation there's a hard-working woman well that could be no more true than it is right here 
on everything that Randy Newberg does. My wife, her name is Kim. She's the most bashful, behind-the-scenes, modest woman in the world, but also the only reason that I'm not some drunk sleeping underneath the overpass down by the railroad tracks. If it was not for her, I'm sure I'd be in some bar with my own stool with my name on it. That, that's just the way it is, and I, I'm the first to admit that that woman is a saint. So, anyhow, <clears throat> with that said, here's here's one of the. I don't know how you, uh, how do I get off on these tangents? I, I apologize. No, I don't. But so one one of the questions this person brought up is: Can you explain more about the fate of wild sheep in North America? Uh, wild sheep are bighorn sheep. We're talking the thin horn sheep, which are the doll sheep and the stone sheep of the north. We're talking about Rocky Mountain bighorns, a subspecies of that, California bighorns, and desert bighorns. One of the things that is a challenge in the sheep world is the fact that wild sheep contract pneumonia and disease from domestic sheep and goats. And if any of you... And I, I'm going to ask the Wild Sheep Foundation guys to be on this podcast. And Gray Thornton, the, the president CEO of Wild Sheep Foundation, has agreed that when we're both done traveling this year, we're going to do a podcast together. Because here's, the, the fate of wild sheep right now is as tenuous as I've ever seen it in my life. The Wild Sheep Foundation and its members have done remarkable work to build up the sheep. And there's other sheep groups, the Nevada Bighorns Unlimited, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society in Colorado. I mean, full of amazing conservationists. And they've done so much for wild sheep. But I'm going to use the example of my state here of Montana. And everyone thinks the world of sheep in Montana is just everything's hunky-dory. Because we grow huge Boone and Crockett sheep. If, if you want to have a superb hunt, just pray that you get your Montana bighorn sheep tag because you will have a superb hunt. Unfortunately, we have been losing our herds like crazy due to disease. We lost a herd in the in the Elkhorns. The Tendoys just got wiped out. Uh, Melrose, the, the that country, Rock Creek. A lot of our herds in Montana have been stricken by disease, and the number of, of ram tags that the state of Montana is giving out is far less than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And unfortunately, the political environment is such that the politicians on the state level, and, and Mon- I'm using Montana as an example, but you could look at all the other western states and it'd be very similar. The politicians, don't they, they, they somehow view wild sheep on the mountain as a complication of everything that almost the end of western civilization if you have wild rams up on that mountain that's going to be the end of the world and so we have a very hostile legislature in montana that is very anti uh wild sheep and it's it's very unfortunate because you look at the historical habitat of what wild sheep occupy today versus what they had occupied at you know, historical times, you know, 200 years ago. And it's a fraction. And if if you are one of those guys, and this, this is kind of my call to action for you, if you are one of those people who bemoan like I do that you've never drawn a sheep tag and every year I, I apply in many Western states and I don't draw, the best thing you can do 
to increase your odds of drawing a sheep tag is to do something that puts more sheep on the mountain. The more sheep we have on the mountain, the greater the odds of any of us drawing a tag. And there's no group I know that is a a better group doing more with their money than the Wild Sheep Foundation. And I'll take that to two other groups, and I mentioned them earlier. Nevada Bighorns Unlimited and the, the in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society. Those three groups are doing more for the cause of wild sheep and doing more for your odds of drawing a bighorn sheep tag, a wild sheep tag, than anything that you can think of. I, I, I don't know how else to say it, um, but that, that's our best chance. That is how we are going to be able to somehow make it easier to draw sheep tags. So that's that's my plug for today. I mean, uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, Bad Bighorns Unlimited, those are the groups that you should be supporting if at all possible. So in the back, you're you're probably hearing this phone ringing. It's somebody calling my house here. What the hell are they doing calling my house at 9 o'clock at night? Um, so I'm just going to ask you to ignore that a little bit. Uh, but I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which of these questions I should answer as the last question. <clears throat> so I, I'm going to pick this one. Someone sent me an email and says, Randy, on your TV show, you never tell exactly what unit is where you guys are hunting. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we never do. And if you email me, I'm never going to tell you what unit I'm hunting. And that's not because I've got some great secrets. I mean, let's face it. In our show, it's all public land, self-guided hunting. So most often, we are hunting uh, a general unit, an over-the-tag, you know, over-the-counter tag, something like that. So it's not like we're hunting places that are great secrets. But to me, a huge part of the fun of hunting it. If you if you do the research, just that in itself is a ton of the fun. The summer spent going over maps, talking about all this, doing Google Earth, all that stuff. To me, that's a huge part of the fun. Yeah, networking, interacting with people about places, that's fun too. But I, some of you have expressed how frustrated you are that I won't tell you exactly what unit this hunt took place in or that hunt took place in. And it's it's just that simple. Um, you know, if I were to put a marker on a map and say this is where we hunted, even if we just shot some small little animal, it would screw up the draw odds. It would not be fair to the people who, who've been hunting there for a long time. Um, and it would deprive you of one, the enjoyment, but also the, the knowledge building that comes with doing your own research. So I hope that that doesn't piss too many of you off, but that's the way we operate this, this thing. We're not, not going to do the, (laughs) the, the recommendation of, uh, do this, do that, uh, you know, go here, buy this tag, whatever. Um, I want people to figure it out for themselves, and that's so that that's the answer. Uh, one other question came up in an email, uh, Randy. 
I see that you have filmed some episodes where you've missed. I don't see that with other TV shows. Well, I think you probably do see it with other TV shows, but maybe we just miss more. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're going to see more episodes with us uh, missing. But no, with, with the TV show, I have zero interest in showing it any way other than what what happened out there. I mean, all of you who've watched. You know that I missed. You know we have guest hunters that missed. I mean, 2012, no, 2013, yeah, 2013, I missed a whopper elk in Arizona. Took two shots, had a, about a 30-mile-an-hour crosswind at, I don't know, 200 and some yards, and the bullet drifted just to the right of this elk quartering away from me. And I was so confident in the first shot that I replicated it with the second shot. And, uh, you know, the, the editor's like, ooh, Randy, that's going to sting. I'm like, yeah, it still stings, and it does today. But, you know, well, <clears throat> I was in Colorado last week, and we were actually elk hunting, and I did have a deer tag, and then we saw this really nice buck. And I told the camera guy, I said, you know what? I want to shoot that buck. I, that would be fun to chase that buck for the next five days. So we kind of put the elk on on hold and we chase this buck and right at dark uh pretty much out of filming light maybe 15 minutes of of shooting light left of legal light we encounter this buck and he and another buck are grazing across this burn and in the hurriedness of getting cameras set up and everything else i i'm I'm mad at myself. I don't care that it's on TV, but it just frustrates me that I missed that buck at. Uh, it was a very hard shot. It was 370 yards, but I practiced way out beyond that. Um, yeah, I ha I didn't have a solid rest. I had to shoot off just sitting on my butt with my pack in front of me, and I could make all kinds of excuses. But you know what? When you practice as much as I do, when that's your job, Randy you got to make the shot. And I didn't. And I looked at the camera guy after we realized the, I mean, we went back the next morning and looked for hair, looked for blood, everything else. We, we could not find anything. And finally I just had to admit, and I told him, I said, you know what, Tyler, I feel like the, the professional football kicker, the, the place kicker who gets paid a lot of money. Not that I get paid any money. I, I haven't made any money at this ever, but, uh, his job is to kick the 58-yard field goal to win the game. That, that's his job. Randy, your job is to make the shot, even if it's a difficult shot. And in the footage, we saw that I grazed and just took a snippet of hair off him, uh, right off his top of his shoulders. And so I feel like the, the kicker who kicked the ball from 58 yards and he's about six inches wide on the field goal it's like oh man so to the to this person's question of do other shows not miss or do they just not show i i don't have the answer to that i i'm i'm not there to know what really goes on but i can tell you that in our show when we miss we miss and we tell you about it those of you who been following us for a long time in uh the On Your Own Adventures series that we did, uh, I think it was in 2011 that show aired. It was my brother and I, we were in Colorado uh, elk hunting, and he finally got an encounter, and he shot, and he hit an aspen tree. And 
<laughs> part of this is because he's my younger brother and I'm never going to let him off the hook. But he looked at me and said, uh, Randy, uh, do we have to? I mean, does that have to be in the, the final episode? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that is going to be in the final episode for sure. But uh, so that's, that's just how we do it. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, there's times certainly we wish we could uh, perform better, but we're we're like all of you. In fact, we're probably below par, <clears throat> and uh, we're just out there giving it our best effort. So, hope that answers the the question that that you sent in here. It's it's not that we we miss a lot, and other shows don't miss at all. Uh, I we just show you what happened. So. Anyhow, <clears throat> I've drug you guys along uh, a lot here, and I don't know if this format of me doing a Q&A is, is going to be a format worthwhile. Uh, I guess we'll find out when this one airs. Uh, and if you would, go to our Hunt Talk forum. If you have thoughts, if you want to see certain guests, if you want to have certain topics brought up, uh, send them to us. Uh, you can... Go to the the contact link at uh, randynewberg.com and send them there if you want to send them as email. Or on the Hunt Talk forum, on the Hunt Talk forum, you can go to the piece, the the, the part of the forum, the segment that is about nothing but the podcast. And the the thread there that that you'd want to look at is, it's called uh, Podcast Request for Topics. So if, if you go and leave that stuff... We'll try to get to it. I, I can't say we will for sure because right now there's a hundred questions out there, and you know, fifty eight hundred people have have viewed it and read it. But the <clears throat> the whole idea of this podcast is we want it to be engaging. We want it to be as interactive as recorded media can be, and the best way to do that is for us to solicit from you those comments, those ideas, those thoughts about. Not just guests, but topics. And I'm going to be off the road here, but give me another two weeks after Thanksgiving, and I'm going to be at Elk Camp down in Reno. Man, I got a bunch of cool podcasts lined up down there. And then I'm going to be in SHOT Show in January. Going to have a bunch more cool podcasts there. And then it's trade show season for for us in the media world. So you're going to hear all kinds of different guests, different perspectives, a lot of ideas about, you know, politics, public lands, hunting, the, the whole works. Somewhere along the way, we'll give you a season recap, let you know where we went, how it went, why we probably need a new host for this TV show if it's ever going to continue uh, because Randy's getting worse by the day. I think it's because I'm getting older. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that all of you are having a good season because our season is it's been one of those rougher seasons, but it's been one of those fun seasons filled with lessons, filled with teaching moments, uh, and some really good memories. A lot of good, a lot of good food getting uh, brought into the freezer. So with that, uh, <laughs> I have a note here. We have this checklist that, that we kind of go through when we do the podcast. And it's closing comments. And for guests, it's whatever closing comment they want to provide. And for Randy, the closing comment usually has to do with either pissing off a politician or giving marital advice. And I'm sort of torn between which one I should do. But I think this one is marital advice. 
when I was in Colorado last week, I lost my wedding ring. Um, so if your wife tells you to go get your wedding ring resized, do it. Because if you lose your wedding ring, and I think we, when we got married, we were starving. I think we paid $80 for my wedding ring, and boy, that was a we really thought we'd splurge then. If you lose your wedding ring, what I've come to understand is that not only do you have to buy one ring, but you have to buy a new matching set. And if you think you can get off the hook for that for under $1,500, you're probably going to be in for a surprise. So that's my piece of marital advice to wrap up this podcast. Do not lose your wedding ring. So anyhow, thanks for listening. Uh, Appreciate it very much. I don't know when this podcast will air, probably sometime in late November. Uh, If you would, please follow all of our platforms. The Fresh Tracks TV show you can catch on the Sportsman's Channel every Wednesday night at 9.30 Mountain Time. Uh, You can download our episodes if you go to randynewberg.com. All of our new episodes, all of our old episodes, you can download them to you, whether it's your phone, your iPad, whatever device you want. Uh, Once we get our YouTube channel up and running, I mean, we've got a lot of content loaded right now that is it's considered private because we're still tagging it and sorting it but come january you're going to see a lot of stuff there so if you would like to be in the loop when that stuff goes live um go and subscribe to our youtube channel it's randy newberg hunter and uh the hunt talk forum uh that's the place where a lot of really good information gets shared, especially that, you know, what's going to happen is this winter is when a lot of this Western application stuff is. And I would put the hunt talk crowd up against any forum, any, any place you could go to as far as forums, when it comes to sharing and giving advice about how these Western application systems work. If you want to come hunting in the West, You need to know how that stuff works. And the best place to gain information on it is the Hunt Talk Forum. And as always, please share the podcast with your friends. The more downloads we get, the better it is for all of us. So thanks a lot. I hope you're in the middle of a great hunting season. And we will join us again probably, well, if you subscribe to us, you're going to get another podcast two weeks from the day that you downloaded this one. Thanks a lot. Hunt hard, hunt safe, have a great season.